0: Well, uh, welcome to River City Church. My name's Brandon, one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Good to have you guys here this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, last week we uh, began, we started a new series, uh, taking a look at the five foundational pillars or five defining ideas um, that the Reformation as a whole was based on. And um, these things are referred to as the five solas. Uh, sola is the Latin for the word Alone. And each of the five solas answers part of the question about how we know God and how we're made right with him. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace by the grace of God alone. Sola fida, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our Lord and our Savior and our King. Soli de gloria, we live for the glory of God alone. And sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our highest Authority, As one pastor writes, the five solas are the summarization of what the Reformers believe that the Bible taught about salvation, that we are saved by God's grace alone on the basis of Christ alone, that that is received through faith alone to the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone as our one, only, final, decisive authority on what is true. And last week when we began, we began by uh, taking a look at that fifth sola, sola scriptura. The conviction that Scripture alone should be our highest authority. The conviction that nothing should be greater, that nothing should be equal to, that Scripture alone is our highest authority. That was the starting point of of the very underpinnings of all of the things that uh, were happening during the time of the Reformation. But it's also so foundational, not just to the Reformation, but but to every part of our Christian lives, that we're spending two weeks studying that sola, scroll of Scripture. Last week, we began, we talked about how sola scriptura, at the heart of that sola is the question about authority. What holds the highest authority in determining what we believe and how we live, and where do we go to find truth about who God is and about our life? The Reformers... For them, this was absolutely foundational to their concerns about the church of their day. And as we figure out how we know God and relate to him, the question is, where does the buck stop? Whose opinion matters most? To whom or to what do we look to to appeal to make our closing arguments when we're, when we're deciding things about who God is and, and how we live? Last week, we spent our time studying uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we looked specifically at the end of the chapter where Paul highlights to Timothy and argues with, Tim, argues with Timothy about, he gives him three reasons why Scripture should be our highest authority. And he says that Scripture should be our highest authority because it is the very Word of God. If you want to know the truth, you go to the source. And if we want to know the truth about who God is and what it, what it looks like to live in light of Him, we go to the source, we go to His Word. Secondly, Paul said, it's trustworthy. He said, Timothy and him, they had become convinced of it because it was trustworthy, which means something is trustworthy. It means that it is reliable and that it's true. Lastly, Paul said that scripture is our highest authority because it is sufficient. It has everything we need to know to be saved and everything we know to be sanctified. It has everything we know to be made right with God and everything that we need to know to grow up into looking more and more like God. And so, this week, what I want to do is highlight for us the things that that tempt us, the things that often get in the way, the things that often become the thing that we look to to be our highest authority instead of Scripture. Last week, I argued for why Scripture should be our highest authority. This week, what I want to do is I want to highlight the things that often get in the way of that, the things that we end up actually looking to to be our, our highest authority, and to highlight what happens. When something other than scripture takes that place of highest authority in our life. And then what I want to do is at the end, I want to come back and talk about what it looks like practically as a church for us to live in light of that truth, the conviction that scripture alone is our highest authority. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our study this morning as we continue looking at the solos. God, thanks so much for your word. God, thanks most of all for you. God, we are so grateful that you would carefully and trustworthily passed on the record of your word so that we would know you. God, we're so grateful that you are uh, revealing, God, that you reveal yourself to us, that you want to be known, that you're not hiding, that you're not playing games with us, that you're not trying to like hide yourself from us in any way, but you want us to know you and you want us to know what is true and what is right and what is good. And so God, we just ask as we study your word this morning, as we sit under the authority of your word, God, that it would be good news for us. And that it would be life giving as we sit under the authority of your word. And so we ask that that would that you would teach us. We ask that I got that you that you fill me with your spirit so that anything I have to say would be helpful and valuable and good and worthwhile. God, we want to enjoy your word and enjoy you. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good. I pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen. So the question we're asking this morning what happens when something other than scripture takes that place of highest authority. When it comes to discerning what is true about God, who he is, what he's like, how we know him, and ultimately how we're made right with him and how we live in light of him, there are a number of influencing factors. First, there's our experience, right? That's the things that have happened to us in our lives. It's what, the way we view the world. It's what we think is right. It's what we feel is right or wrong. It's, it's also the spiritual experiences that we've had, the encounters that we've had with God. There's also reason, this is our intellect, it's our mind, it's, it's, our, it's science, it's our analytical view, it's observations, it's the way that we see the world around us. And then there's tradition, this is how society at large, and more specifically it's how the church, what the church has taught us about who God is and what it looks like to live in light of heaven. And lastly, there's scripture, the Bible, which last week I talked about what we believe is the, the very word of God. And so, the question, I just want to be clear the question this morning is not which of those things is the right thing. It's a question about the order of the things. It's a question about authority. Which of those things is going to be the thing of highest authority? Which of those things is going to be the thing that matters the most? We utilize all of them, but when push comes to shove, when it's finally time to make a decision about what we actually believe and how we're actually going to live, Which of those things are we going to rest our case on? Is it going to be our personal experience that's the final judge? Is it going to be our own reasoning or our own intellect that we're going to trust to accurately weigh the options? Or is it going to be our tradition, what we've always done or what we've been taught to do that has the final say? Or is it going to be scripture that's going to be the litmus test that we use to see what is true and what is right and what is good? So the question is, what happens when each of these things is put into the place of highest authority? when they're put into a position when they're not, where they're never intended to be. You see, many claim that reason should be our highest authority. The Enlightenment brought about the exaltation of the autonomous man. It led to the exaltation of reason and the advent of, of rationalism. And at the heart of rationalism is belief that all our opinions and all of our actions should be solely based on reason and knowledge. That's the only criteria that makes anything worthwhile or good. That what we can objectively understand and confirm is the basis for truth. And everything else should just be disregarded or considered invalid. And when it comes to understanding God, when people put reason as the highest authority, usually they say something like this, God, unless you fit into my box, unless you prove yourself to me on my terms, I'm not going to believe in you. They limit God's revelation of himself to science and microscopes and test tubes. My friend uh, Rick uses this analogy a lot when he hears this kind of thinking. He says, let's say you wanted to receive all, of the pack- all your UPS packages. I like to receive my UPS packages, right? Let's say you wanted to receive all of them, and so what you did is you cut a two-inch slot in your door, and you told the UPS guy, stick them all through that slot. How do you think that's going to work? Not awesome, unless like you're only buying toothpaste or something like that, right? It's Obviously, it's, it's too narrow. You might get a few packages through that opening, But you're probably going to miss most of the packages. In the same way, the person who says, I'm not going to believe in God until he proves himself to me scientifically, has narrowed the range of acceptable revelation to this overly slender slot in the front door of their thinking. After all, could it easily be that God wishes to reveal himself in a number of different ways outside of science? And I just want to be clear, that doesn't invalidate science in any way, shape, or form. But it does suggest that science will only catch a few of God's deliveries to us, missing out on many of the other ones. Reason is just one of the ways that we understand God and form our beliefs and our practices. We should study the world. Science is not the enemy of God. All truth is God's truth. When we study his world, when we learn more, when we increasingly use our minds and our intellect to study and learn and to grow What that should do is that should point us to him, to be amazed by who God is and to worship him. I love the old hymn, This is My Father's World. It says, This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their kales raise, the morning light, the lily white, they declare their maker's praise. When we look at the world, when we study things, they are meant to point us to the creator of all things, that we might enjoy him, that we might treasure him, that we might be amazed by him and all he is. I think some Christians, like, I don't know why, but they just, like, have this fear of science, like science is, like, this evil, wrong, bad thing, and that's just, like, that's just foolishness. (laughs) When we put reason as the thing of highest authority, that's when it becomes a problem, though. Because our, our reason and our intellect is not the thing that is ever intended to be the thing of utmost authority. So the question is, what should the role of reason be? When we put reason above the scriptures, what we get is rationalism. Thomas Jefferson, he literally used a knife to cut out sections of the gospel that he found unreliable, especially a number of the miracles that were attributed to Jesus. The Jefferson Bible illustrated the deistic view of Jesus. He's just this preeminent moral teacher, nothing more. As one author writes, Jefferson clearly put his own standards of rationality above the authority of Scripture. Lots of people implicitly cut out parts of the Bible they don't like. Jefferson literally did so. So we don't put reason above Scripture, and also we don't ignore reason. The heresy of fideism, you don't need to really know that word, but that's just blind, ignorant faith, that what can be known about God can't, implicitly can't be proved, and that's just, that's just foolishness as well. And that doesn't honor God as the creator, as the wisdom of the ages, and it's not what the Bible asks for. Instead, reason should operate for us as a servant of the Scriptures. We use reason to carefully study and understand the Scriptures and the world around us. The, the truth of the soul of Scripture, the Bible doesn't address all truth. That's not the claim. The claim is that all of the Bible is true. And so what we do is we start with that assumption. We let that form how we view the world around us. So, some rely on reason as the highest authority. Others look to experience to be their highest authority. As a pushback to rationalism of the Enlightenment, the Romantic area, um, elevated experience to the place of highest authority. Our personal experience, our understanding is the final authority on what we believe and how we live. This is at the root of the postmodern and relativistic thinking that we see all the time in our day. See, relativism is the idea that truth is dependent solely on context or perspective rather than being absolute or objective. It's the opposite of rationalism. Truth is what you decide or what your community or what your culture decides. Whatever is, might be true for you might not be true for somebody else. You hear this kind of thinking everywhere. It's often touted as limitless tolerance, the ultimate way to true peace. But really, I just need to be honest, really it's just unbridled pride and ignorance is what it is. You see, when the basis of our beliefs about God and about the truth are ultimately based in our own personal experiences, we are on incredibly shaky ground. My friend Rick, again, he does a lot of evangelism and apologetics ministry on college campuses around the country. He really wisely notes the following about what happens when the starting point for what we believe and how we live is our personal experience rather than the Bible. He says, when the starting point uh, is God's revelation through his word, people tend to ask the question, how do I fit into God's story? But when the starting point is our own personal religious experience, people ask a different question. They ask, how does God fit into my story? One is permanent. The other is provisional. He writes this. He says, The young people among whom I minister often begin with themselves rather than with God. And when they grow tired of the church or its traditions or struggle with certain teachings in the Bible or feel put off by other Christians or uh, fall um, wither under the critique of skeptics, they say to themselves something like this God no longer fits into my experience or my beliefs. It's time to move on and, and move out. And at first, he says, they have a feeling of exhilaration as the restraining cords of religion are cut away, as they reassert control over their own lives. Self empowerment is alluring, indeed, an entitlement of Western culture. But what usually happens is at some point they feel untethered and unmoored and unsettled. You see, if your final authority is culture or your personal experience, the ground is constantly shifting. Cultural norms are constantly in flux. Personal experience is highly subjective. Neither are reliable guides. But if your final authority is the scriptures, the enduring stability of the word of God, then you will be on firm, unshakable ground. But don't think that experientialism limited to just some sketchy college kids, right? <laughs> How many times have you been sitting in Bible study and you hear somebody say something like this? Well, what this means to me is, I hear you, I hear you saying, but I just, I just totally take it a different way. That's experience being the thing of highest authority. It just doesn't mean that you can't have different viewpoints when you study the Bible. It doesn't mean that you can't have different perspective. But experience is not our highest authority. Postmodern thinking says that meaning lies with the reader, that you either can't know what the author meant or it doesn't matter. And in either case, the reader is the one who determines the meaning. And if you want to approach like a very limited amount of music or poetry or some fiction books that way, man, more power to you, right? But that's not how the vast majority of all of literature is written. And it's certainly not how the Bible was written. See, we look for the author's intended meaning. God is the author. We want to find out what he said and what he meant. And then we apply those truths to our lives. There can be multiple applications, but there can only be one meaning. There can be lots of applications, but there can only be one meaning. I remember being in Bible study one time. We were looking at John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I remember hearing somebody say, I think that that Jesus is just saying that he's one of the ways to God. And I, I just I just remember, I, I didn't say this out loud because it wasn't helpful and it wasn't the time, but I just remember thinking, that's not what that means, and it's also not what it ever meant. You can disagree It's okay if you disagree with what Jesus claims, but he meant that he was the one only way to God. That's what he meant. You have to wrestle with that claim. You see, it doesn't matter most what we think about the Bible. It actually matters what the Bible says. And so our first goal is not to have an opinion about it, but is rather to carefully study it so that our experiences are informed and transformed by the word of God. When we're basing our belief and our life on the personal experience, it seems freeing, it might seem good at the outset, but there are a lot of problems with relativistic thinking. The, the real issue is that people don't actually believe or practice that. People don't actually believe that all truth is relative. People say that, but they don't actually believe that. You see this most clearly when you think about the idea of our longing for justice. When you are wronged, you always want justice. When you feel wronged, you want justice. That is you believing that there is a universal truth about what is right and what is wrong, and that someone else should be punished for the way that they treated you. In the late 1940s, the Nuremberg trials, the Nazi leaders were tried for the atrocious war crimes, including the genocide of the Jews and and many others. And their defense at the Nuremberg trials, the Nazis' defense, is that They were just under orders, and they said they they broke no German law. There's no German law. Their their community thought it was totally fine. But what happens is that they end up being convicted under what are called universal laws, crimes against humanity. You see, the notion of universal law reveals that there must be a universal lawgiver. There is truth. It can be known. We all long for justice. We want to promote and enforce our view of those rights, but there's only one truth. It's God's truth. It's His ways. So some put reason at the highest authority. Others use experience. The third thing that threatens to take the place of Scripture as the thing we look to as our highest authority is Tradition. This was the issue at the forefront of the reformers' concerns about the church of their day, that they were teaching things that were based in human tradition rather than on the word of God. And they had elevated their tradition to equal authority as the Bible. And the real issue was that they were teaching things that were in contrast to the Bible. Now, before we just dive any deeper, I just want to say this. I just want to be clear. Church tradition is not inherently bad or wrong. In fact, one commentator, I think, just really helpfully writes this. He says, there are many practices that churches, um, practices that are churches that are the results of traditions and not the explicit teaching of Scripture. It is good and even necessary for the church to have traditions. Traditions play an important role in clarifying and organizing Christian practice. At the same time, in order for these traditions to be valid, they must not be in disagreement with the... With the word of God, sola scriptura does not nullify the concept of church traditions. Rather, it gives us a solid foundation on which to base our traditions. You see, understanding the history of what the church has believed and taught over time, that helps us to avoid heresy, and it helps us to avoid sketchy interpretation and wrong and bad application. But the truth remains that people are fallible, and we get stuff wrong Sometimes. Our first priority is not to obey the church. Our first priority is to obey what God has said. And that's not to say that those things are in opposition or that they're warring against each other. I think the best way to look at it is Acts 17. In Acts 17, the Bereans, a group of Christians, they're commended because, uh, it says in Acts 17, that they received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, when it says about the Bereans that they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true, the implication is that if the Scriptures said it, they would believe it. And if they couldn't find Paul's teaching confirmed or consistent with the Scripture, then they would reject Paul's teaching. The written word of God was their authority. It had the last word. It was the final word after which no other word would be necessary and contrary to which no other word would be believed. You see that's the call of every believer to know and to study the scriptures to test what is being taught against what the Bible actually says. Because like sometimes people are wrong. I just want you to know like I want you to be able to trust me. I I give a lot of energy to carefully studying the word of God. But it's possible I could be wrong. And if you see that what I teach is not if there's something that's out of line with what the Bible actually says, like you shouldn't just like go along with that. Though the Bible is our highest authority, not what I say about it. This is a well-known story about Martin Luther. About three and a half years after Luther posted his ninety-five thesis, he found himself before the church council threatened with excommunication. And the moderator pointed to the stack of books that Luther had written, and he asked Luther if he was ready to renounce the heresies that he had written in them. Most people think that he just responded with the famous words, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Um, But what he actually said was, in effect, um, could I have the night to think about it? And what he did is he spent the night praying, and he spent the night uh, talking with friends and reading the book of Romans. The next morning when the council was reconvened and he was confronted again with the same challenge, Luther replied that the material in his books could be divided into three parts. He said the first part was stuff that everybody agreed with. It wasn't offensive. There wasn't any problems with it. The second part, he said, was made up of things that were grounded in Scripture that were contrary to what the church of his day was teaching. And the third part, he said, were personal attacks. Luther acknowledged his fault, and his zeal sometimes prompted him to resort to abusive language. And for that, he begged for forgiveness. But as for the second part, Luther declared in the words that flesh out what we mean when we say sola scriptura, he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is not safe or right to go against my conscience. Would God help me? You see, on some things, Luther was wrong. He was a sinner like all of us. And he admitted his error and he asked for forgiveness, which is right and good. But there were things that the tradition of the church taught that were simply in opposition to what the word of God said and he could not abide by it. Scripture, not tradition, was his highest authority, and it must be ours as well. Tradition cannot be superior authority to the Bible. Tradition cannot be an equal authority to the Bible. The words of man do not match the words of God. You see, some, ch- some churches teach that the, your primary responsibility, what matters most is that you believe and that you do whatever the church teaches, what they say and why the Bible clearly instructs us to submit to the leadership of our church, in our churches, to honor and respect those who teach us. Our first allegiance is to God and to his word. Your first allegiance is not to me or to Aaron or to what any, somebody stands up here says. I, I want you to know, I think you can trust me. I study diligently so that I might teach rightly. But your first allegiance needs to be to the word of God, not to me. If ever I say something or some church says something that is, that is opposed or at odds with what the Bible says, the choice is easy. We listen and obey to what God's word has to say. You see, the Bible repeatedly undermines the reliability of our experience and our reason, and it expressly warns us not to raise our traditions to the level of Scripture. Regarding reason, Job 11, verse 7 says this, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says God, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than yours. Our reason and our intellect, it is limited. Despite all the advances we have made, despite all the technology we have, we do not know everything. We often forget that. Regarding experience, Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that appears right, but in the end, it leads to death. Peter, when he saw the transfiguration of Jesus in, in, in the records of the gospel, he thought that the right thing to do was to build some tents. Later, he would realize that what Jesus was showing him was a promise of his glorious return. He just totally misinterpreted that experience. Regarding tradition, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and the elemental sp- forces of this world rather than on christ again in first corinthians 4 16 he says he's talking to the corinthians here he says now brothers and sisters i have applied these things i have applied the scriptures to myself and to apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us what it means when it says do not go beyond what is written then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against the other he says paulos and i the pastors of this church we're under the authority of scripture that's the thing that matters most Jesus himself talking to the religious leaders of his day in Mark chapter 7, verses 16 through 13, he said, said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it's written, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the human traditions. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is, should be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares uh, what might have been used to help their father or mother as korban or devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother and thus you nullify the words of God by your tradition and you, that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. But scripture is altogether different. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. I've been teaching my kids that verse in the past few weeks. Everything else changes, but the word of God is always the same. Psalms 33 verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right and it's true. He's faithful in everything he does what we say, what we think, it's not always right and true. And it certainly is not always good. But the Lord's word is always right and it's true and it's faithful. John 17, 17, Jesus longing for his disciples to grow. He prays for them. He says, God sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. There's one thing that is our highest authority because there is one thing that is the trustworthy, reliable, sufficient Word of God, and it's the Scriptures. It's the Bible. What happens when we allow any of these things to take precedence over Scripture, what we have done is uh, what we do is that we dethrone God and we enthrone ourselves as the King. We decide that we'll be the arbiters of what is true and what is right and what is good. That's the foundation of all sin. At the root of all sin is a mutinous rebellion. It's the belief that our experiences, that our reason, that our tradition, that that what we think and what we know is the best, that we deserve to be the arbiters of truth and right and wrong and what is good. And that's at the root of all sin. So the question is, what does it mean for us at River City to hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura. What does it mean for us to look to scripture to be the thing that's our highest authority? Well, it means regarding experience that we filter our experiences through the lens of scripture, and we filter others' experiences through the lens of scripture. When somebody writes a book about what heaven is like, we test that against what the Bible actually says heaven is like, to see if it's actually true or not. When we don't We don't look to culture to be the thing that affirms what is right and wrong and what is best and good. We look to God's Word to be the thing that sets the standard for what is true and right and good. When we read the Bible, we don't supply the meaning God does. We study looking for authorial intent, seeking to have our lives informed and transformed by the Word of God, not using our experiences to validate what the Bible says, but using the Bible to interpret our experiences. When it comes to reason, we study God's word, not just with our hearts, but with our minds. We reject blind, ignorant faith, and instead we pursue a, a, a robust understanding of the scriptures that understands its context, that understands its language, that understands all of the things that go into it. The Bible does not address all truth, but it The claim is that everything the Bible says is true. And so we start with that assumption and we submit our reasoning to the authority of the one who knows all things. We hold our traditions loosely and we seek to found anything we do on the word of God. When you read the bylaws of the philosophy of ministry of River City Church, you'll notice there aren't a lot of scripture references in there. And that's not because those things aren't, we didn't come to those things by studying scripture that's not because scripture isn't the basis for those things it's because we don't want to raise that stuff to the level of scripture it's really easy to just attach a verse to something and then suddenly that thing becomes above questioning oh this verse says it no you can't question that we're really committed to missional small groups for example but just spoiler alert that's not in the bible It's a tradition. We think it is helpful. We think it is wise. We we think that it is founded on biblical principles, but it's not a command in the Bible to have a missional small group. It's just not in there. Additionally, as your pastor, I am under the authority of God's Word. If you think I teach something that that is at odds with what God's Word teaches, you should ask me to show you where the Bible says what I taught you. What the Bible says is the thing that matters most. Now, like, don't be like a prideful person and be like, to me if you do that, right? Like, be gracious. Be like, ask, ask good questions. Ask about where I found the things that I'm teaching you. But I'm not above questioning. Additionally, we study the scriptures here on Sunday mornings because what I say is not that important, but there is nothing more important than the word of God. In small groups, we don't, what we don't do is read books about the Bible in small groups. We study the Bible in small groups because what we want to do is be formed by the word of God. And we exhort all of you to study the scriptures on your own. The translation that I preach from and that we encourage you to use, the NIV, was chosen, um, Aaron and I chose that in large part because we felt like it was the best combination of accuracy and accessibility. We want you to read your Bibles. We want you to be confident that you can understand it and you can learn from it on your own. Side note, if you're a Christian, then you have the Spirit of God and the chief, one of the chief jobs of the Spirit of God is to explain and help you understand the Bible. So you have what you need. Also, get a study to Bible to help you. They're helpful. But don't rely on that more than you rely on the Spirit of God. I just want to close with this. When Scripture is our highest authority, it is incredibly freeing. When Scripture is our highest authority, it is incredibly freeing. But when we exalt anything else to the place of highest authority, what we do is we decide that we are playing God. We we elevate ourselves to to the level of God, and we cannot bear the weight of that responsibility. We were never meant to. Instead, we're meant to be under God's good authority. It is safe. It is good. It is where we thrive as we know and live in light of the truth of God. And as we close this morning, as we celebrate communion, communion is a reminder that like you are, we're free to confess our sins, including our exaltation of our own reason or of our own experience, of our own traditions. We're free to confess our exaltation of ourselves and to say, God, Remind me again, help me put myself under the authority of your word. And we're free to do that because in communion, what we're remembering and what we're celebrating is that Jesus died for our sin. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we should have lived. The drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that our mutinous, sinful rebellion deserved. And on the cross, he traded places with us. communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it is a chance for us to remember and to worship God, to celebrate the good news that the Bible proclaims, that we know that we are made right with God, that we are saved by God's grace alone on the basis of Christ alone that's received through faith alone to the glory of God alone with the scriptures as our final authority. That's what the five solas are all about. They remind us about the good news, about what is true. Every church does communion differently. At River City, you just go during our time of musical worship at the end here. You just um, go, you dip the bread in the juice on a table in the back. Communion is between you and God, so you you won't be dismissed. It's up to you. You don't need to, and lastly, you don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. So in light of those things, let's pray. and spend some time worshiping God. God, we're so grateful for you and we are so thankful for your word. God, I am so thankful for the words of Isaiah which remind us that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word will always stand forever. God, your word is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is true and it brings life. God, I just pray that you'd be gracious. Just that you'd be gracious and gentle convicting us of when we put something else as our highest authority. How you'd graciously, lovingly reveal that to our hearts so that we might turn and repent and we might, again, put Scripture as the thing of highest authority so that we might know you and love you and be in a right relationship with you. We're thankful for the good news that the gospel proclaims that we that we don't deserve you, that we don't deserve to be saved, that we haven't earned it, that we couldn't merit it, and that if we could, we'd mess it up. But instead, God, The gospel proclaims that we know and are made right with you because you chose to love us. So by faith, we receive that and we live in light of it for your glory. God, give us wisdom to see when we put something else in the place of highest authority. And by your grace, remind us of the good news of your scriptures. Help us to put them in the place where they belong. In your good name, amen.